Today is the first Sunday of a new year, January the 6th, 2013. I don't know about you, but there are two times during the year that I kind of mark as a uh, fresh start. One of those is September, I think because I'm a hopeless academic, and school always starts in September. Every September, toward the end of August, I start getting this uh, passion to smell the smells of new books. And I have to go to Staples or somewhere and buy some office supplies, at least a pad of paper and some pens and pencils, so that I feel like I'm starting over. And September is uh, my fresh run at a new academic year. And since I'm a lifelong academic, I guess that's only natural. Uh, but uh, the other time is uh, the first of the year, and I think for many, many people it is a time uh, to begin again, to look back and see where we've been or where we've come from, and then to look ahead and see what the year holds. And as believers, I, I think it's a very special time. I often think of Paul's testimony in Philippians chapter 3, where he says, forgetting what lies behind and looking to what lies ahead, I press toward the mark of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And uh, that verse is inevitably on my mind because it, it signifies turning a page, turning a chapter, and in this case, turning a whole calendar and starting over a new year. And it's kind of a fresh beginning. Uh, it's an opportunity to begin again. Today is also the first time that we will celebrate the Lord's table together as a church family in the new year. And it gives us an opportunity uh, to come around the table of the Lord and to remember uh, what he has done for us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church, uh, about some of uh, the things that are going on there. Uh, the Corinthian church was kind of one of Paul's problem children. Just by way of prelude, you need to know that carrying the gospel to Corinth uh, was like uh, carrying it to a moral cesspool. Uh, in the earlier service, and I don't mean to be offensive here, but uh, we all know that New Orleans is famous for a lot of things, and among them the vices of the flesh. Uh, certainly parts of California are. When I think of the continent of Europe, I think of Amsterdam. There are those places in the world where they're just known uh, for carnal pleasure and fleshly indulgence. And the city of Corinth was like that. It was one of those cities in Rome that was kind of known for its carnality. And uh, as a consequence, when the gospel of Jesus Christ came to Corinth and people were converted, they had this background. And, you know, sometimes I think that we're of the impression that a commitment to follow Jesus Christ is automatically going to eradicate uh, our, our past and automatically flip our worldview to a biblical perspective and just kind of uh, fix everything. 
the reality is that coming to Jesus Christ and being born again and having new life in him is the beginning of a journey. And it's a journey that the Holy Spirit leads us along to day by day, hour by hour, shape and mold us into the image of Christ. There are some things that are obvious that God deals with us at conversion in terms of repentance and transformation. I mean, they're just things that that we're convicted of. But for those of you that have been on the path for a while, I'm sure you will agree with me that the further you go down the road, the more you understand how truly depraved we are, the more you understand how much we need grace, and the more you realize that having a biblical worldview is a process of constant confrontation of wrong thinking with biblical truth and gradual transformation to the perspective of God in this planet. Well, the Corinthians were no different. It wasn't long after they became a church that they started going off the wire in a number of directions. And one of them was with the Lord's Supper. And Paul's kind of amazed at at where they went with this because he delivered to them the tradition as he had received it from the Lord. And he explained to them what celebrating the Lord's table or communion, however you call it from your background, he explained to them what that was all about. And he gets word that it's turned into a mess. And he writes them in the 11th chapter of his first letter to straighten out some of the problem. I want you to follow with me beginning in verse 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. How would you like that to be said of you regarding communion? Whenever you have communion, it just turns out worse for you. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it because there has to be factions or those who are genuine wouldn't stand out so obviously. Now, I paraphrase that a little bit, but that's the meaning of that verse. He says there's got to be problems there because the real deal in your midst really stand out as being quite different. Uh, Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first. One is hungry and others drunk. What? It really says that here. Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. Now, do you have in your mind a picture of what was happening at Corinth? They were having the Lord's Supper, and unlike us who have this table Uh, prepared and there's bread on it and and everything is nice in its little holders they brought their own food it was kind of like a potluck except they didn't put it on a common table they brought their own food and they ate it themselves each family and the ones that were wealthy brought a big basket full and you know three or four bottles of wine And the ones that were poor often came without anything. 
And the ones that had a lot kind of sat around and became gluttons and got drunk. And the others just kind of watched. And, and Paul is genuinely incredulous. I mean, he just hears this report and he says, What? I don't know what to say to you. I, I'm, I'm astounded that you could take the Lord's Supper and turn it into this. This is not for your improvement. This is a disaster. And then he says, For I receive from the Lord that which I gave to you, and this is the way it ought to be, that the Lord Jesus, in the night that he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Because he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep, which is a nice way of saying they died. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged but when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If you're hungry, eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. And the rest of this stuff, the remaining matters, I will arrange when I come. I was thinking about communion this week. It's been on my mind. And in thinking about it, a couple of thoughts occurred to me. One is that anything we do repetitiously or by tradition or liturgy, we run the risk of doing mindlessly. It becomes a habit that we merely go through the motions. And we run the risk of it simply being part of the service. Well, okay, we sang, we took an offering, we prayed, we had the announcements, we take communion, we sing a song, we go home. It's just a part of the liturgy. And, and there's always that risk that it, will, that it will become that. It's always a risk that it will become commonplace and ordinary. For the Corinthians, it had become an opportunity to have a gluttonous feast and drink a lot of wine. And they just made a mess of it. Uh, it had become so common to them that the whole meaning of it 
had not only been lost, but the name of Christ was actually being blasphemed in their revelry, in their gluttony, in their drunkenness, and in their blatant disregard for the unfortunate and the poor among them. So much so that Paul says, God is judging you for your cavalier attitude. He's dealing with you. Some of you are sick and some of you have died. And, and you're not making the connection here. Because you're coming to this table thoughtlessly. And you need to come thoughtfully. You need to come reflectively. You need to come reverently and think about what this means. And this is not an occasion for, for you to show off your bounty and to, to have a party. This is a time for you to think about what Jesus Christ has done for you and to, to, to come into communion with God. The other thought I had about communion is kind of 180 degrees different, I suppose. I thought, what a bizarre and odd symbol that we have as Christians. What a weird kind of ritual that we have. I mean, you grew up in the church, many of you, and you've been doing this for years. Some of you came from the Catholic Church and the the communion had its own significance within Catholicism. And, and because we're Christians, I think we tend to think of this as being normal. But if you think about the fact that we're the only religion on the planet that celebrates our God by eating his body symbolically and drinking his blood. That's just really weird. I mean, it is. It's odd. It's so odd that the first century Romans accused the Christians of being cannibals. They didn't understand what was going on in their meetings, but they had heard something about eating flesh and drinking blood and, and they said, these people are cannibals. Not only that, they thought they were atheistic cannibals. The reason they thought they were atheists is because they were worshiping a God who wasn't there. There, there was no idol, there was no presence. The Romans worshipped gods they could see. They were graven images, they could, and they could name them. And, but these weird Christians couldn't see their God, so they must be atheists. And they eat flesh and drink blood. They're cannibals. These are bizarre people. They justified killing the Christians because of these oddities. And so when you think about what communion is, from outside of the faith, it's a really strange practice. But I want us to do just that this morning. I want us to stop and think about what it is that we do when we come to the table of the Lord. 
And I, and I want to remind you that Jesus, in all of the Gospels, record his institution of this tradition when he changed the Passover or Paschal dinner by adding these elements to it that, that gave a whole different perspective. At one point in the meal, when he took a certain portion of the bread and offered it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And then when he took the cup and said, this is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for you for the remission of your sin." What was he saying? What does it mean? And how do we approach the table thoughtfully? It helps if we go to John uh, chapter 6. And I'm going to begin reading in verse 26. But in John chapter 6, to give you the background, Jesus has fed the 5,000. Uh, they've been following him around for a few days. Uh, finally, and we learn this by kind of putting all the gospel stories together, but finally they, there comes that dramatic moment when um, the disciples say, you know what, Lord, it's time to send these people home. It's dinner time, you know, and Jesus says, why don't you feed them? And they just kind of look at him like, us? There, there's 5,000 men here, and wives and children. What do you mean, us? And he says, well, what do you have? And, well, there's this kid here, this lad that's got some fish and loaves. Well, bring it. And the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 occurs. You know, there's, there's simply no way... <clears throat> Liberal commentators on the scripture have tried countless ways to reduce this to a fanciful story. And those who have tried to cast it in the best light have twisted it to say, well, what really happened was um, this lad came forward and produced these fish and loaves and uh, it inspired everybody to pull the loaves out of their sacks and share, and, and everybody, because so, some people had brought food, just like this guy, and others hadn't, and, and so it inspired everybody, and they all kind of shared with each other. There's no way. You know, when you read the whole picture, there's simply no way that that happened. This was a miracle that as we come to this middle of John 6, we find that they want repeated. I mean, this was free food. It wasn't anything they brought. It wasn't anything uh, that, that they could produce. It was like totally free food. And they think this is fantastic. Follow Jesus and get free food. And so that's what they were doing. 
And so when it came time, Jesus said, you know what, we need to get away from here. And he goes to the other side of the, of the lake. <laughs> no sooner does he get there, you know, than they have made their way around and the crowd's still there. This is the setting for verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. The only reason you're interested in me is because I filled your stomach. Now think about that, because there are a lot of applications to you and me. The only reason you're following me is because I'm doing stuff for you. But because you ate the loaves and were filled, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, okay, so there's something else involved. Tell us what we can do that we can work the works of God and get the free food. Okay? This is so much like us. You know, we have a tendency to, to look at the Bible and say, oh, those people are so dumb. I mean, how could, couldn't they see what they were doing? And, and we don't see what we're doing. You know, Jesus, gimme, gimme, gimme. Well, work for the food that has eternal life, endures forever. Okay, what do I have to do to get gimme, gimme, gimme? Just tell me I'll do anything if I can get free food. Now, we don't really mean that because we're not going to do anything too awful. But, uh, but we're still looking for a way. And Jesus says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said, what then do you do for a sign that we can see and believe you? What work do you perform? Can you believe that? I mean, just think about it. He just fed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, wives and children, with two loaves, or two fish and five loaves. Give us a sign? Really? Our fathers ate man in the wilderness. He gave them bread to eat out of heaven. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, oh, okay, Lord, always give us this bread. They're just, they, they are so dense. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I'm the bread. Okay, I, I'm not talking to you about that stuff you chewed up and swallowed yesterday. I'm talking to you about my life. I am the bread. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Now, i go over, skip over a little bit um, to John, beginning in verse 50, 49. Same chapter, 649. Well, 48, where he declares... I am the bread of life. 
And then he says this, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Then the Jews begin to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, And let me emphasize the words for you, because it's like right in your face. Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not like the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus is trying to make a point to some very hard-headed Jews. And if there was one thing that was abhorrent to them, it was the thought of cannibalism and the thought of eating or drinking any blood. In fact, it was prohibited in the law to eat any meat with the blood in it. They were to drain the blood and then eat the meat that had been drained because the scripture says the life is in the blood. Jesus is right in their face saying, you must eat my body and drink my blood because you don't have any life. Now, we know from the scripture that he is not literally talking about eating his flesh. I know that for many reasons, but one of them is as he sat at the last supper with his disciples... He had not been crucified. He had not been resurrected. He was sitting there intact, whole. 100% of him was present. And he took bread out of a, a napkin or a bowl and offered it to them. And he said, this is my body. Now he was holding the bread with his body. And he was not missing any parts. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Clearly, he was not talking about his physical body. He was talking symbolically about his life, which is the source of our life. And when he offered them the bread, he was offering them symbolically the, the, the concept that they needed him in order to live. He is the bread that satisfies our deepest hunger. He is the bread that meets our deepest need. He is the bread that sustains us in the midst of all of life's circumstances and difficulties 
He is the bread that gives us life everlasting. I'm going to talk about the blood in just a moment. But remember that it is in the resurrection of the body of Jesus Christ, proof positive that he has triumphed over death and conquered sin, that gives us life. If he had not come out of the grave, there would have been no life. But it is because He is raised, because He is alive evermore, that there is life in Jesus Christ. We can come to Him who has conquered death and conquered sin and paid the price and proven it by raising, rising from the dead and ascending to the Father and offering us His life as eternal life and the sustenance of our being. In a little while, I'm going to bring some of the elders forward, and they're going to hand out this bread. And this is a matzah cracker. It probably came from Jewel or somewhere like that. And when we pray over it, it's going to still be a matzah cracker. We're not going to magically transform this into the body and flesh of Jesus Christ. There is no magical power in this bread. This bread is not going to give you a special uh, blessing of grace. This matzah cracker will not. But what this represents is the fact that you and I need Bread, food, every single day to sustain this physical life. If we don't eat in due time, we will die. We must eat. We need bread. It is the basic staple of life. And Jesus said, You need me. Every day, you need me. Every day, you need to eat of me. Every day, you need to take me in. Every day, you need my life. I am the bread of life. You need my resurrection power. You need my life coursing through your being. You have no life in yourself. You must have me. If you don't have me, you will die. You need me. I am your bread. Now and forever, I give you life. Paul said, when you come to the table of the Lord and you take the bread... It's not so you can fill up your stomach. It's so that you can contemplate your dependence, your need for Jesus Christ. It's so that you can be reminded that that longing inside of you, that yearning, can only be met in Jesus Christ.
that no one can take his place and no one else can give you life and no one can sustain you eternally except the living bread who is Jesus Christ. This piece of bread won't do much for you. But if you contemplatively receive it by faith as a symbol of your conscious dependence upon the life of Jesus Christ, his life is sustaining you. It is an outward testimony of our conviction that he is my life and I need him more than I need bread. Jesus said, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they still died. But if you eat of me, you will never die. When we take the bread, we need to be reminded that we are demonstrating our dependence on the living Savior who sustains us through all of life. Praise his name. Praise his name. And then he said, you need to drink my blood. Oh, man, that's so hard to get past. It reminds us that sin is pretty ugly. A high price was paid for our sin. Peter says it was precious blood, the blood of a lamb without spot or blemish, the blood of Jesus Christ. When Jesus took the cup and he offered it to his disciples, he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you for the remission of your sin. This is grape juice. They drank wine mixed with water. It's reddish like blood. It comes from the grapes. And when we pray over this, it's still going to be grape juice. This is not going to change. But it represents the blood, the life of the vine, which is Jesus. He is the vine, we're the branches. It represents the blood of the covenant that cleanses our sin. Jesus said it is the blood of a new covenant. I want to remind you of the old covenant. You remember when this was first instituted officially in the life of Israel in the Exodus when God said to them, uh, kill the Passover lamb, put some of its blood on the doorpost and the lintel, made a cross out of the door, prefiguring Christ. And when the death angel came, he passed over the houses of Israel and no one died because of the blood that covered them. And then as they went into the wilderness and God gave the law and explained the ceremony of the temple and gave all of the, the rituals of worship, 
There was the altar on which the Passover lamb would be slain. There was the altar on which all of the sacrifices would be slain. And there was the law that was the standard of righteousness. And they had to come day after day, month after month, year after year, offering the same sacrifices over and over and over again as a covering. But as the Scripture says, the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. But this is a new covenant. This cup represents the blood that was shed on the cross of our Savior who has removed our sin. He has not merely covered it. He has taken it away. It is gone. It's no longer in our life. God has removed it. It is the very basis of our relationship with him. You know, in the book of Revelation, it says, and they overcame him by the word of their testimony, by the blood of the lamb, and they did not love their lives to, even unto death. And it's talking about how they overcame Satan. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. I've heard many people through the years say, oh, plead the blood. And, and uh, then I've heard uh, people pray, I'm pleading the blood of Jesus. And, and they're doing it kind of like you would do this for a vampire. You know, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say these words and there's going to be power here. The blood of Jesus. The words don't have power. And the power of the blood is not magic. It is the reality that the blood of Christ has atoned my sin. It has given me peace with God. I am forgiven. The power of sin is broken. The devil is defeated. He has no claim upon me any longer. He cannot make a single accusation stick. No matter what he says. No matter how true it is. He points to me and says, I accuse you. And Jesus points to me and says, my blood has cleansed him. And the devil has no power. And I have peace with God. I have a relationship with him. The Jews were horrified by the things Jesus said here, but they were horrified by a lot of things Jesus said. He taught them to pray, Our Father, and they went, <gasps> Our Father? That's blasphemy. We don't even say His name. He is so distant. He's so removed. He's so holy. He's so separate that when we see the words Yahweh written in the Scripture, we only say, and the name, blessed be He, that's so distant from me, I can never hope to even get near Him. And Jesus said, because of the blood that has removed your guilt and destroyed your sin, you can come into the presence of Almighty God, Creator of heaven and earth, 
and you can curl up in his lap and lay your head on his breast and say, Oh, Daddy, oh, Daddy, I need to talk to you with boldness. Papa, God, Abba, Father. It's amazing. It's amazing. Because of the blood, I am free. I am clean. I can be bold in His presence. I can come with confidence. Not because I'm worthy or because I deserve it or I've earned it, but because Jesus has shed His blood and given me open access to my Heavenly Father. And with boldness I can find grace to help and mercy in my time of need. When we come to the Lord's table and we take the bread and we take the cup, we need to remember. We need to remember. We need to reflect. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it whiter than snow. I need Him. I need Him every day. I need Him every moment. I need Him. He is my life. I need to eat of Him. I need to drink of Him. I need to take Him in every day. He is my life. And His blood, His blood has cleansed me and made me pure. And I can stand in the Father's presence with confidence. When we come this morning to the Lord's table to take the bread and to drink of the juice, they are symbols of our faith that he has died for me and that is all I need and that he lives for me and he is all I need. He is everything. Praise his name.